You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Devil Edge Devil Bill. Tonight, it's Tom Hanks and Joe versus the Apollo 13. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Sheriff Thomas Mariani, and I need to remind my co-host that you are a toy! You are a child's plaything! I, uh... I'm Adam Thomas, and, uh... Uh, Mama said these are my magic shoes. Oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think. What's the play? I don't want to go too offensive here. Oh no! But you, you, you slid right into it. <laughs> well, I go. I could have done a quote from Philadelphia. <laughs> that would have been a little worse. <laughs> well, uh, tonight uh, we are talking about, in case you couldn't tell from our little prattle here, um, about our topic for today, uh, which in honor of. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood coming out. Um, we're talking about Tom Hanks, who's the star of that film playing Fred Rogers, which, brilliant casting, not in terms of actual look, but in terms of just, hey, we need somebody to play one of the f- most beloved people ever lived. Let's cast one of the living most beloved people on Earth <laughs> right now. Yeah, exactly. We need someone wholesome to play this. Well, get him. He's super wholesome. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it feels like. But I have, I, for some reason, like I just don't really have a lot of interest in that. I think it's because I saw the documentary. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. Which I, I don't see this being any. I don't know how it could be better than that documentary, and I feel like I'm already going to know everything that's going to happen. Well, plus what I've heard actually from people who actually saw it at like film festivals is that the trailer was slightly misleading in terms of it's actually more about the Matthew Reese character and mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is more of like a supporting character in the movie, which well, might be like well, at least that's like a different perspective because the worst thing would be just more of a dramatic version of that documentary, the I Won't You Be My Neighbor, which um, made me cry so many times. That's, that's such a great documentary. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, but obviously. We all love Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks got his start in, like, the early 80s um, in, like, a few smaller movies, but mainly through uh, Bosom Buddies was his first big role. And then he ended up graduating to film uh, with a few notable projects. Mainly, it would be big, right, was his big breakout, as it were. Was big pre or post-Splash? No, you're actually right. Splash is pre that, yeah. So Splash is more okay. Pre- so because yeah. I, I want to say Splash is the first thing I saw with him in it. Yeah, because uh, that's also the same year as Bachelor Party, right? Which I don't think I saw that as a child. Uh, <laughs> I, I would hope not. But Big was the first one that I remember going, "Oh my god, it's the guy from Splash!" Like remembering that that's a the same person and. Of course, big, you know, just made me a huge fan. Well, admittingly, for me, Adam, um, weirdly, I'm not as familiar with sort of that pre-big era of Tom Hanks. Like, I've seen Splash and I've seen Bachelor Party, um, but that sort of era is not the Tom Hanks I'm more, like, aware of, really. The, admittingly, the first time I was ever aware of Tom Hanks was 
I think we even talked about this when we did our Pixar episode, was totally Toy Story. Like, to the point where there's an infant part of my brain that anytime I see Tom Hanks in any movie, I just immediately think, oh, hey, it's Woody. Like, it's just like, that's so ingrained in my psyche <laughs> that no matter what, I just hear like, oh, Woody, what's up? Just when I watched both the movies we were doing today, I couldn't help but just immediately associate him with that. But I think the first time I ever recognized him as just like an actual person was probably Forrest Gump, uh, because I mean that's a, one that a lot of people around like sort of my age, slightly older, like still really have an attachment to. Um, even though that movie not, might not hold up as well as we think it does, probably not. Yeah, that's really true. <laughs> <laughs> I was never, you know, I was honestly never really a big fan of Forrest Gump anyways. Mm-hmm. Like, even when it came out and it won against, I want to say, like, Quiz Show was the the other one that year, wasn't it? Or was- it was Quiz Show and Pulp Fiction and uh, Shawshank were, like, all that yeah, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shawshank is the one I'm really thinking of. And I'm like, why is this winning over all these? It, it, Forrest Gump, it goes into the ludicrous pr- quite uh, frequently. I mean, also, uh, that, it, also, it's OK Boomer the movie. That's, that's yeah, pretty yeah. much what it is, too. <laughs> yeah. Not to say that it's a bad performance by him or anything, but it's also... It's overrated, man. <laughs> it really is. I was honestly surprised you didn't put it as one of your options for the bad movie, just to be a rebel and a renegade, like I know you are. I, I just, I'm like, I don't want to watch this again. <laughs> well, to actually point out what two movies we are discussing based on um, our pickings from last time, we are talking about um, our bad movie is uh, from 1990. It is Joe versus the Volcano, uh, which was your pick. And then the, the good pick that I had was Apollo 13 from 1995. And that's also probably around the time where the Tom Hanks image solidified. I think it's interesting we're talking about both those movies because post big was like his first Oscar nomination. And then he was sort of put up a bit more as like, oh, from charming young up and coming actor to oh, this is guy's more of, like, a mainstay. And, like, the early 90s were kind of a weird period because he would do stuff like Bonfire of the Vanities, but also League of Their Own. So he was being more solidified as to what the Tom Hanks kind of role is. And I would argue that the one-two punch of, well, technically one-three punch of, like, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, and then Apollo 13 kind of solidified who Tom Hanks would ultimately be for the rest of his career. Oh, yeah, no, without question. You know, because he won for Philadelphia, correct? And for Forrest Gump, he's one of the few, I think he's the only actor to win two in a row. No, I mean, absolutely. That alone just solidifies him as a titan and, you know, a mainstay of American acting, without question. Yes. But let's start um, chronologically and go with uh, Joe versus the Volcano. Once upon a time, an average Joe found out his life was over. I'm not sick except for this terminal disease. And that's... Joe Banks? When his adventure began. I want to hire to jump into a volcano. Warner Brothers presents Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. I love you. I love you too. It's great. I am glad. But the timing stinks. I gotta go. Joe versus the Volcano. So Joe vs. the Volcano uh, came out March 9th, 1990. Is uh, written and directed by John Patrick Shanley who I want to say has the weirdest career of any, like, screenwriter in recent memory. It's so fucking weird, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just just to listen to his credits, uh, first he was a player before he ended up writing Moonstruck, which he won an Oscar for, but then he would do, like, January Man, and then Joe vs. the Volcano, and then he'd follow that up with Alive, and that same year he wrote We're Back a Dinosaur Story, the animated movie. I know, what the <laughs> and, fuck? And then after that, he did C- Congo, um, mm-hmm. 
and then he returned to directing again and also wrote Doubt based on his play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the Catholic movie. Yeah, that's great. Right, right with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep. And it's such a <laughs> weird fucking film career. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking really, really bizarre. You know, and the thing is with Joe vs. the Volcano, I, I have a very, very strong suspicion that the fact that he was, uh, you know, an Oscar winner because of Moonstruck and Moonstruck performed really well critically and everything that they kind of gave him carte blanche to do what he wanted to do. Joe vs. Volcano feels like a first director's passion project that he wants to knock that out first. Like he wants to just start off, get his dream movie as his first movie because what <laughs> this movie's so kind of all over the place. I described it basically, this is the first time I'd ever seen it. You picked this because you had the strong hatred for it when you were younger. Yeah. My feeling on it is it's about five different movies, four of which could be pretty good movies individually, and one of which is terrible. Spoilers, the ending is the bad part of the movie. It's <laughs> right, but I still think, like, watching this the first time, I feel like there's enough interesting ideas and stuff to make it, at least it wasn't, like, a horrible watch for me. But at the same time, it is such a mess. It is a huge, massive mess of a movie where you can tell he had so many ideas in mind and it just never quite coalesced into anything. Did it improve at all for you upon this new watch so many years later? Oh, yeah, without question. Because, I mean, you got to think, when was this released again? You said... Uh, March 9th, 1990. So I was like seven when I saw this because I saw it in the theater. Imagine being a seven-year-old watching this movie and be like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, this isn't the guy from Big. <laughs> like, it just... It's just like always stuck in there. That was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, so seeing it now, it's better than that, of course. Now it's it's just kind of boring. Where, like you said, nothing really coalesces, nothing really solidifies in any kind of really any kind of singular vision. Period. I mean, you start off as basically a dystopian, you know. Sci-fi Brazil type factory that he's working. It felt very Terry Gilliam early on, especially. Yeah, yeah, and then it turns into the friggin' uh, jungle to jungle at the end, the Tim Allen movie. Well, and even and it also stops in so many different weird places yeah. where it's like it's, it's at one point through this weird when Harry met Sally romantic comedy with Meg Ryan, who I will honestly say um, of this movie of its two leads, I preferred Meg Ryan here. I'm actually not always the hugest fan of her. Like, I love When Harry Met Sally and a few of her other sort of earlier comedies. Um, but I think she kind of got, just got stuck in her rut with a typical Meg Ryan role. As opposed to here, she's playing three different characters. I don't know why she has to play three different characters necessarily. Yeah, I get it. But I found her fun in each of those different parts, especially the middle section in L.A., which, one, felt very L.A. story. And also, she feels a lot like the Marla character from Gremlins 2. <laughs> she, like, looks yeah. exactly like Marla from Gremlins 2. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you, because I'm not really a huge Meg Ryan fan either. I mean, I got nothing against her, but I'm never like, oh, the new Meg Ryan movie. She is quite good in this, and she, I, all three characters that she plays definitely feel like singular characters, and none of them feel like you know she's phoning it in on any of them. They all have their own distinct personality, look, voice, everything. So yeah, no, she did, she did very, very good in this. Uh, Tom Hanks, he's not terrible in enemies, Tom Hanks. But this is definitely early Tom Hanks acting. 
Well, because like, the thing is, this is before he sort of became solidified as a dad figure. Previously, we've talked about the Burbs, uh, which was sort of his oh, first time being a dad. And it almost feels like after that movie, he kind of wanted to still be, be like, but I'm still like the young Bachelor type, right? And it feels like he's just on the cusp of like not quite being that. He's trying to avoid being a dad, but it's like, but you, you are a dad, though. You're, you're, you should just embrace being a dad, Tom Hanks. That's, it feels like this sort of weird, almost quarter-life crisis period for Tom Hanks, where he's like, no, 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 what? I'm, I'm, I'm Kip, I'm cool, I'm still with it. <laughs> yeah. Look, I start, uh, I, I got a mullet in the beginning of the movie. Look at it, look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling my boss off. But like I said, it's, it's just so all over the place. And if I didn't know any better, if I didn't do any other, you would think this is based on some book. Just because there's things that are in this that it like it doesn't make any sense to be in it, to where it almost feels like whoever directed it was beholden to the source material. We'll come to find out the director also wrote the movie, so he's very beholden to his own source material. And but not based on anything in particular. It's, it's not based on anything in particular. It's it's his own original thing, but it, it's there's so many little parts of this movie like that could have easily been taken out. There was no need for this. There's no need for this. There's like no fat trimming to this movie. No, it's it's, it's a lot of fat and not quite any muscle. In there yeah, to quite keep it together. I still think though there's still fun stuff. Like even for Tom Hanks, I would say the funniest bit for Hanks in this movie is the bit where they're about to leave L.A. Um, he's about to go on the boat and he's dressed up and he's just like, oh, I guess you're wearing that's like what? This is too much. And he puts on the hat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the funniest fucking bit from him. Um, but even then, I think Meg Ryan has a lot of the funniest stuff. Like, that whole L.A. section is my favorite bit of the whole movie, particularly when he just has his whole diatribe about, like, you know, you ever figure you might feel lost and alone and endless in this giant world and you kind of want to find your place? And she just pauses and says, I have absolutely no response to that. <laughs> I love that bit. So would you, what would you say is your favorite, like, section of the movie, of the various different loose threads here? Jesus. Uh... I really like the stuff with Ozzy Davis a lot, actually. Uh, I really like Ozzy Davis. I always have. So I, I found that part kind of fun. I, I, you know, honestly, though, I say that, but that's grasping at straws. I mean, Meg Ryan was good, but other than that, it's kind of just I don't know that there's any really standout, standout sections for me. I mostly notice more little snippets a lot of times because of, you know, the certain lot of character actors in this movie. Like the whole Lloyd Bridges part is really fun. Of course, yes. Right before Hot Shots, this is him in Hot Shots mode, pretty much. Exactly. Oh, yeah, all wily-eyed and shit. Uh, I want you, know. you to jump into a volcano. <laughs> I noticed you did ask me by day, but what I am, and I really respect that. Showed a lot <laughs> of guns. <laughs> like, Robert Stack is fun, too, as the doctor. You know, just hearing his voice, you're instantly transported to, you know, tw- uh, Unsolved Mysteries and whatnot. So I have nothing wrong with me, except I have this giant brain cloud that's going to kill me. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a brain cloud. But no, it's 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 just so much shit just thrown together and with barely enough glue to keep it together at the seams. So I mean, honestly, I don't know that there's an actual beat or arc or story point in this movie that really, really stands out to me. There are some that stand out for being really stupid, but that stand out for being fantastic. I don't really see any. Well, I, I just think like, I want to like this movie more in terms of like the, the general premise for those who might not be aware. Cause even I told a few people who are like around my age that of this movie and they're like, I don't know what that is. 
like it's apparently been yeah, really no. lost like a modern generation <laughs> to some degree. But a lot of people who are like slightly older than me do really enjoy it. The basic premise is that Tom Hanks plays this guy who works this dead end job organizing stuff for like a medical magazine or some shit like that. Um, and then he uh, finds out from his doctor, played by Robert Stack, that he has a brain cloud in the middle of his brain that's gonna kill him. Um, in the near future, he says he has, like, five months to live or something like that. So he quits his job, and he's trying to, like, find something to do with his life. And he's just sort of told uh, by Lloyd Bridges about, like, Hey, I heard about you. I want you to jump into this volcano over at this island that I own. All the native people need a sacrifice. I mean, you're going to die anyway, so you might as well go out in style. I'll pay for anything you want to do before Yeah, the- because if if you appease their volcano, they'll let me have the the mineral that's only found on this island that they're protecting. But if you do this sacrifice yourself, if I give them a hero, then they'll let me have the minerals. It's basically Avatar when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, oh God. <laughs> He's, I need the unobtainium. That's what I'm looking just, for. I'm just going to do that. <laughs> oh, man, I would love Lloyd Bridges in a mech suit, though. That'd be great. Oh, God. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. Um <laughs> It's a thin plot. It really, really is. Yeah, and I guess, like, the the overall sort of message or premise is it's really about um, the titular Joe trying to find a purpose in life after being stuck at a dead-end job for so long and having this, like, limited amount of time. He's like, oh, I gotta, you know, do something and enjoy myself while I have this time on Earth. What do I do? And I think the problem is that he never really quite takes a grasp at that. He never quite learns anything specific that he wants to do. Because even, like, the... It, he, it feels he's constantly just, like, being plugged around by the plot, really. The only, like, really interesting things are, I agree, when he sort of takes control of a situation. Like the Ozzie Davis thing, which is fun, where it's like he has a chauffeur for a limousine, and he um, is like, hey, you, you want me to buy you, like, a tux or something because you're driving me around? Sure. And you're almost like, I would rather just have, like, a buddy movie between these two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even to the point to where at the climax, or near the climax, where she tells him, you know, you know, I love you. You know, I've never loved anyone, and I actually am falling in love with you. And well, and he's like, you know, I love you too. I've never known anybody long enough to fall in love. Well, gotta go. Like it doesn't. He doesn't learn anything. Well, I don't know. See, the thing is, I actually really do like at least that particular moment more because of Hanks's delivery. Because what he actually says is just like, you know what? I love you too. I never loved anybody before. It's great, but the timing stinks. I gotta go. <laughs> and then he fucking goes into the. No, the delivery is of course it's great. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. There's nothing in here that sort of dissuades him from doing what he's going to do. It, I mean, literally at the end, it's, you know, let's pray for a miracle, and he jumps. Like, and then he gets blown out of the volcano. The ending especially is really where I'm just like, this is so fucking, like, you had no idea what to do. Either that, no. or I heard some rumors that apparently this was originally supposed to be a different ending, that's supposed to resolve everything and have jo- Lloyd Bridges come back and stuff, but test audiences didn't like it. And I could believe that too, because that ending feels so thrown together at the last exactly. second. And it doesn't also help that, like, this whole last section where he goes off to the island and there's this native population that's offensive but not in any specific way, which is the weird thing, because they have, like, a bunch of white actors here that, like, Abe Vagot is the main chief and Nathan Lane is also there, which is like, oh, God, Nathan, no, stop. (laughs) Please, please stop doing whatever you're doing. Early Nathan Lane. Yeah, very early Nathan Lane, and he's going very over the top. He's playing he's playing to the rafters in the way like he does in the producers movie from two thousand five, where it's like I'm in theater. It's like no, you're in a movie. Calm down. <laughs> you, you don't have to play that big. Um, but but yeah, just this whole ending bit where he's on this island and it's 
a weird, like I said, cultural depiction where there's like no specific race being depicted, but it's just generic enough to also be very clear. Like, you know, native people, that's what they are. Yeah. Remind me a lot of um, the 2015 version of Peter Pan, Pan, uh, which had a very similar thing where it's like, oh no, we're not having anybody specific here. We do cast a bunch of white actors and they're all in like these pastels and big elaborate feather costumes, but we're not offending any singular race or anything. It's like, yeah, but it's also really just lame depiction of like a native culture that's that feels incredibly ill-advised on every level yeah their whole thing here is they love orange soda yeah what <laughs> come on it's not only offensive it's also super lazy even down to like my biggest problem with that ending especially is that like tom hanks and meg ryan are about to jump in to the volcano and then they like it ended up being spurt out by the volcano it was like mist and then the volcano like destroys the island and it's like, we don't address the fact that all these natives are dead, right? Like, yeah. they all probably died horribly, either by magma or drowning or anything like that. And it's just like, oh, well, I guess, you know, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are here, but they're all right on the luggage, so... Happy ending? <laughs> How is that happy yeah. ending at all? <laughs> I, I know. I, it's, like you said, it feels so forced and rushed. Again, that's the whole problem with this movie. It's, none of it interconnects, and yet it's filmed and shot and sort of laid out in a way where clearly the director, uh, you know, slash screenwriter thinks it all interconnected. And I, I mean, at the end, I'm literally going, okay, well, that exists. Like, it's, I didn't feel any connection to anything in this movie. I, it feels like four or five kind of decent ideas that none of them are fleshed out, and yet they're all part of the same package. It's just, it's a, it's a bizarre little movie. Which I guess is why some people really screw some sort of attachment to it in that this is unlike a lot of movies in Tom Hanks' general filmography as well. Like, I can't really point to any other specific movie that this kind of like has a direct parallel to that he's done before or after this even. It's it's weird because like, I, I really like uh, John Patrick Shanley in terms of, like I would say, I love Moonstruck. I think that movie really works because I think he, he has a full idea of like all the different characters he's juggling. And it feels like it comes from at least some familiar reality of like, oh, a very dysfunctional family unit that kind of like has some familiar threads that still come together at the same time. And it's like that works as opposed to this feels especially also like not just a first time director, but a playwright transitioning into cinema in a way where you can definitely feel like, Oh, I have like so much more I can do that I can't do on the stage. But also at the same time, so much of the direction does feel very stagey at the same time. I don't, I, I really don't know why I still just, I, I, I can't connect with this movie. I don't know if it's, it's not the way it's shot. It's filmed competently. It's, you know, decent enough acted. There is some good ideas to it. Some of the locales look pretty good. The fucking shark is ridiculous. Oh God, that shark bit. <laughs> that fucking shark. Oh my God. <laughs> but it's just not a very engaging story. It's not populated with really engaging characters. This is a good background movie if you're trying to go to sleep and you want to put on something that you're not going to really have to pay attention to. But at the same time, you wouldn't say it's quite the worst in Hanks' filmography, necessarily. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, what do I, I don't know what I think is the worst, really, but uh, well, I don't know, man. This might be my least favorite. I'm not sure. I mean, I would say it's lower tier Hanks, but at the same time, it doesn't feel as like sort of tone deaf as something like my least favorite is Bonfire of the Vanities. 
Oh yeah, that's, that a really, that's a really bad so movie. much because it's trying to be like a satire, but it feels so tone deaf in terms of what it's saying and very of its time, but in a way where it didn't understand itself like the times it was in, and then also didn't end up aging well whatsoever. And that's a movie where Tom Hanks is cast as like a yuppie asshole, and it doesn't work at all because that's not fucking Hanks's ground. At no, all. not yeah, whatsoever. I agree. As opposed to this, he at least feels like he's literally playing an average Joe, as it were in this case, and that's compelling to some degree. I think it's, really the best sequences in this movie, I feel, are like when he and Meg Ryan are together, and especially it's like, either like them having dinner, like we didn't mention her earlier character, is his kind of nerdy co-worker, who after he tells off his boss, Dan Hedaya, is just like, hey, do you want to get dinner later? Sure, I'll do that, and then they like, have a little fun dinner scene, and they almost get together, but then he says that he's dying, and then she kind of is like, I can't handle this kind of pressure. And then later on, there's another great dinner sequence with him and the L.A. version of Meg Ryan. And then even him and the sort of uh, ship captain, uh, sort of more fully together personality at the end. Um, I think when they're just, like, together having, like, back-and-forth dialogue, it works at its best. And you can see definitely why, if nothing else, someone would have watched this and say, hey, let's do, like, a good romantic comedy with these two, and we got Sleepless in Seattle. So I, I would at least say that their back and forth is enough to keep this movie watchable. But overall, yeah, there's no real distinctive theme. There's not much of any coherence to these characters or whatever plot that's going on. And it has such a non-ending. It is like the most non-ending of an ending <laughs> possible. Yeah, it's ever. really ridiculous. Like the, the credits roll and I was like, that's it? Like this, this, what? There's nothing. It, it, it ends with a... But a fart. You know what I mean? It's a, it ends with a whimper. It's, it's a sure. pretty wet fart of an ending, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess, uh, unless you have anything else to say, Adam, those are pretty much my final thoughts on Joe vs. the Volcano. I, I mean, I don't hate it as much as I thought I would. You know, I hated it when I saw it when I was a kid. Uh, I don't hate it now. It's just a very, ultimately, forgettable, skippable film. Yes. Uh, but you know what's not skippable is this... ESO show you can queue up right after our podcast. Hey, pardon interruption, but do you want to learn more about love, lust, sex, anger, happiness, music, time, space, and the human race? I hope you do, because I'm here to beg you to listen to Soul Forge Podcast. We're your weekly dose of life and living here on the ESO Network. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and soulforgepodcast.com a proud partner of the Rusted Robot Podcast here on the ESO Network. Let's find out together. All right, now let's get to our good feature, which uh, is a a bit more well-remembered and beloved to some degree, Ron Howard's Apollo 13. Apollo 13 flight controllers, give me a go, no, go for launch. Does it bother you that the public regards this flight as routine? There's nothing routine about flying to the moon. I can vouch for that. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. The Apollo 13 spacecraft is apparently losing breathing oxygen. Odyssey, do you read me? How long does it take to power up the limb? Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. So Apollo 13 came out June 30th, 1995, directed by, as I mentioned, Ron Howard, and is based on the book Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, who Tom Hanks portrays in the film. It's based on the actual happenings that uh, took place when the actual Apollo 13 mission went off and 
was initially assumed to be, oh, it's going to be fine, it's going to be like a typical space mission to the moon, to the point where people were ignoring it, and then something went wrong, and Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes, who the other two are played by Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton, respectively, uh, trying to save themselves in space while everyone on the ground is uh, scrambling to try and help them out. And um, this is a movie I picked because I thought I'd seen this movie. I think I mentioned in previous episodes, like, oh, yeah, Apollo 13, whatever. And I just realized while doing research that, like, this one is actually one I don't remember seeing, at least in one sitting altogether. And I think mainly because it sort of felt like um, a more of a dad movie, quote-unquote. Like, my dad, full disclosure, who started listening to the podcast recently. Hi, dad, if you're listening. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, Mr. Mariotti. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, um, he loves the space program and mm. especially like, I cannot tell you how dorky that dude gets, especially when we visited Cape Canaveral, that dude was like a pig and shit. He just loved the idea of being there, which I mean, of course it's the, it's fucking man going to space. That's incredible and phenomenal. And this is arguably, upon like seeing the whole thing here is probably the best fictionalized depiction of people in space, really, as, like, a, um, in an actual realistic rounded format. Uh, I mean, yeah, probably. It's the, at least the most, seems factual-based, more than the rest. I mean, it, it, they get into a lot of the intricacies of what they have to do, and, I mean, even as far as to how they eat, how they go to the bathroom, everything. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I can agree with that. Yeah, um, I've, I've heard apparently from Lovell, like, he did a commentary on Apollo 13, and the only bit he described is, like, that's not quite that accurate, is apparently the bit where um, the three of them were arguing at one point in space and kind of screaming at each other. It's like, that never happened, which, all respect to Mr. Lovell, I kind of believe that happened, because I would probably be screaming in space at some point if this happened. I mean, you'd have to be. You'd be in such a state of, you know, panic and disarray that eventually somebody's going to point the finger. That's somebody else. I mean, that's just how it always goes, unfortunately. I don't care how well-trained you are or not. These guys were going to die, and it's, you know, why? Who caused it? So what I don't believe is factual about that whole scene is Jim Lovell going, no, guys, we're not doing this. I believe it was more or less all three of them going nuts at each other. Probably for a good, you know, good chunk of time. I could probably see that, but I think a big thing with this in terms of Tom Hanks' career to me is this is where I feel like it officially solidified Tom Hanks as dad because he is literally playing like the dad of that space station. And he's like, yeah. dealing with his two boys that are arguing with each other and he officially kind of like takes responsibility here. And even earlier scenes where he's like with um, Kathleen Quinlan as his wife and the other children, um, I, I think he really does play the dad role, especially particularly the bit where um, his daughter is, like, wearing that kind of, like, hippie outfit for Halloween. Yeah, that's good. Can I wear this? Jim? No, absolutely not. No. Um, <laughs> no, I definitely agree. And this also really starts to show just the genuine, like, warmth Tom Hanks can bring to these types of roles. I mean, it's all in his eyes. Out of the three, you know, the main performances we addressed earlier, this is definitely, obviously, the, probably the most grounded. But it's also the most heartfelt performance i would say i mean don't get me wrong philadelphia of course but this one it feels like he's just real it's norman rockwell you know america you know nixon's in office they're all driving nice cars the space program's the most it's a huge deal still to a, you know the country and it just 
he fits perfect in this role and this era. I, mean, I think that's perfect. why it's it's the most natural of those three performances. Mm-hmm. I would say, which I think is why from here on out you see them out of those three, like Apollo thirteen is the one that he kind of goes back to more. Obviously, because given Philadelphia, he's not a gay man, so it's obviously him kind of trying to right. play that particular part. And Forrest Gump, um, he's not a person who has some sort of mental disorder. Yeah, so. some un some unclarifiable mental disorder. Yeah. Who the hell knows? But um, and obviously Tom Hanks just has a genuine love, damn near obsession with the space program in general. That's why I think he, I consider him so much of like America's dad because he's like, hey, I want to tell you about space travel and World War Two, and you're gonna sit down yeah, and listen to me talk about it. I saw him on Conan O'Brien, and I think it was right near his birthday, and Conan O'Brien gave him a birthday gift, and it was a painting of astronauts storming the beach at Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I I saw this movie when it first came out, and I remembered liking it then, but I haven't seen it since. So I was very curious as to, you know, is this still going to hold up? Is it going to be dry and boring? And uh, it's still a really fucking good movie. Like, it's really, really good, and it is just populated with character actors and just fantastic performances all around. I mean, Ed Harris. Jesus, I love Ed Harris. This is the main sort of role how people think of with an Ed Harris of just mm-hmm. like straight laced. I'm a leader of this command. I'm going to be doing this, um, and it, it feels very natural, especially when you have a lot of these other sort of like great character actors who are around who play sort of like very sweaty dudes, like especially like Clint Howard, obviously, because shocker, Ron Howard casts his brother in something. I know this happened a lot, not at all. Yeah, yeah, Clint Howard, but he's good in it. Yes, he's good in his little sweaty part. And then uh, I can never remember his name, but he was in Sons of Anarchy and stuff too. One of the other guys, the sort of long, tall, skinny, dopey one. He was also in like Oh Brother Where Art Thou and things like that. He's really good. I know that's really good for the listener. Like, yeah, the one guy from the thing at the place, he was he's tall. <laughs> but, uh, oh, or of course, um, a Gary Sinise. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorite job, yeah. Gary Sinise performances. Period. Um, I like Gary Sinise and all, but he's really, really good in this one. Uh, same with Bill Paxton. This is one of I love Bill Paxton, but you know we've talked about before. Bill Paxton also had a tendency to really overact a lot, mm-hmm. um, and he's really good and grounded in this. Like he's really, really good in this. Yeah, I love the scene where him and Tom Hanks are talking in space, and he brings up like, you know, um, uh, my wife getting pregnant this recent time was a complete accident, and he's just thinking <laughs> about like the idea that he's leaving this kid behind, and Tom Hanks is like, well. It's all the real reason that we can't wait to, for you to be there for the birth of the kid and all this other stuff. I, I really am endeared to like those two and then also Kevin Bacon playing like sort of the younger buck who feels the yeah. most kind of out of sorts in this. Um, I, I really like that dynamic between the three of them where they do feel like guys who know each other from work but also aren't like super friendly with each other necessarily. They're not best buds, but it's like they have a respect for each other that kind of starts to crumble a bit when they, things get tense, but then eventually they grow to have far more respect for like, oh my god, we can we believe we fucking got out of this? Like, those yeah. are dudes who you buddy up with forever after that. Oh, yeah, your friends for life. There's no question. They're BFFs. <laughs> They've got bracelets after this, and they were very... <laughs> yeah. Like necklaces, that's a heart that breaks off in three pieces. That was the part of the narration they cut out of Tom Hanks at the end. Yeah, like, exactly. and, then we, <laughs> and then we got BFF necklaces. Yeah, from the stand at the local mall. The, um, <laughs> like the Figs Remembered store. And then we went. Then we went to the photo booth, and we got pictures with each other. It was really adorable. I'll never forget that summer. That was the summer the music died. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite little banter scenes is also between Bill Paxton and Tom Hanks. When I think it might even be the, the beginning of the scene you're talking about, where you know Bill Paxton's obviously getting sick. He tells Tom Hanks, like, "Yeah, I think uh, 
I think uh, Jack might have given me the clap from using my piss tube. <laughs> he thinks that's like just that. They both start laughing. Just that moment of like levity that they have, and just this horrible, horrible situation. I, I mean, I would crumble instantly. Hey, I'm claustrophobic, so even being out there is like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I know. Like, I was thinking of the scene where, like, they're kind of, like, floating around in that little space tube. I'm like, oh, God, it's so small. That's the thing you don't realize until you, like, do research about the space travel. It's just, like, how cramped those fucking, like, actual space stations are for those people. And how you can barely just, like, move around. Even though you're weightless, it's like, oh, you're just kind of, like, weightless within a very confined space. Yeah, it'd be like being in, like, a, a telephone booth. For, like, months as you go to the moon. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good on all that. I don't want to do any of that. Even the scene where it shows, you know, the the Pope held a special prayer service, and then there's people at the Wailing Wall praying for their safe return and stuff. And me and me and the wife both looked at each other like, "There, no way, no way would something like this happen now." Where you know, basically, the entire world unites over these three astronauts wanting them to come home safe. Well, I think it's just because this also captures a particular point in time where this is supposed to obviously Apollo 11, where you had, like, Armstrong and everybody go to the moon and everything. Um, but they had had, like, what, another, at least other space mission where they went to the moon and everything was fine. So now 13 happens and they're just like, yeah, whatever, I guess we won't even, like, really televise this, even though they're filming stuff. Everything would, felt like, oh, this is humdrum, this is life now, we're used to, like, people going to space. It's like, well, that's fine, whatever, but it's not as important as the first time. But this is the first time something happened where it's like, oh, shit, things are breaking down. This right. didn't work somehow. And they're all just, like, terrified by that idea. Like, I really love also how they established that kind of, like, how special it was earlier on when they had the sort of initial scene in 1969 and you actually see everybody crowding around for the moon landing. Like, that sort of weird community of everybody who worked on this coming together and seeing somebody actually go up there. And how that really sets yeah. up Tom Hanks to really want to have that in his life, too. Like, I want to actually be on the moon. And that tragic fantasy sequence where he's actually on the moon. And mm -hmm. he just feels it for a second. then he, it just dissipates the moment he has to actually, like, spring into action at a certain point. Um, you really get a sense of, like, how this was so innovative and, like, magical but he's sort of stuck in the space where it's like, well, I, it's routine, but I want to be a part of the routine. And also kind of finding like, well, even if I, this broke the routine by this horrible thing happening, I at least will be known forever now as like the guy who yeah. managed to like survive a horrible thing that happened. Right, exactly. I mean, and it, it, exactly what you said is summed up perfectly from Roger Corman's little cameo, who's quite good in it for the quick little season. But he even says, you know, why, do, why are we still funding this? We already beat the Russians. We already landed on the moon. What Tom Hanks says, he's like, yeah, but, you know, what if Columbus, when he discovered America, you know, left and was like, okay, we did it. And that was it. Right. Like, just because it's been done doesn't mean there's not, then you're done. Then there's nothing else you can possibly gain for it. And, you know, they were fighting NASA, especially at this time, were fighting to, to, to tell people like, no, we can still learn a lot. And it's still incredible what we're accomplishing. And, and everybody's like, yeah, I don't care. Like, so he was definitely up against it. I mean, to the point to where, yeah, Bill Paxton's character was supposed to be on, you know, like Apollo 19 or something to go to the moon. And it got canceled before he even went. Right. So he was never able to get back up there either. I mean, so we're talking six more missions after this one and they were done. Not even five. Five more missions, and then by the time 19 rolls around, they're like, yeah, we're good. Feels also kind of interesting given now even the NASA program feels kind of like an afterthought. Um, oh. for various different reasons, um, even though occasionally some 
assholeish president will say, "Oh, we'll go to Mars." Yeah, are we going to do? It? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Space Force. Space Force. Space. Oh God, Space Force. Remember yeah, Space Force? Like, I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I I honestly thought it was a joke. Like I'm like, oh, he's joking. No, no, he really wanted to create space cops. <laughs> I will create space 1999 and 2019. Oh. Ridiculous. Anyway, that's the extent for political commentary for the. You will be the sheriff of the moon. Um, <laughs> your sheriff, Tom Hanks, you'll do it. Your sheriff, Woody, you'll do it. Yep, you're sheriff of the moon now, Tom Hanks. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Say hi to Buzz Lightyear up there for me. <laughs> Why is it Kennedy? <laughs> well, I wasn't commenting on any specific president. Right, sure, sure. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, we're talking about Kennedy. Uh, say hello to uh, Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> but, um, about Quimby. <laughs> this movie, it's thrilling. It's tense, but at the same time, it's such a small, contained story, even given the scope of what's going on. It, it just feels really tightly contained, really tightly, you know, packaged. I mean, because you really only got two locations, kind of the whole movie. You have the, you know, the Houston control room, and you have them up in the ship and that's it. You don't go anywhere else. You spend the whole movie basically with three characters for the most I mean, part. I, I would argue also Tom Hanks's house, even like where we cut to his wife, Kathleen Quinlan, who admittingly is phenomenal in this movie. I get why she got nominated for best supporting actress. Yeah, me too. And I'm usually don't, I'm usually not a huge fan of hers, but she's fantastic in this. Yeah, especially the whole thing. Just, um, um, oh, well, you know, something might go wrong here. It's like, nothing's going to go wrong. And you can tell my husband that when he comes back on Friday and all this shit, mm-hmm. just like, oh, wow, it's, Really powerful. And even, like, the other members of the family, like, I, com- I did not know Miko Hughes was in this. Uh, a graduate of Double yeah, Watch, Double too. Bill <laughs> from yeah. various things. Um, and uh, the scene where, like, him and uh, Tom Hanks early on talk about the whole... Um, the fire. Yeah, the fire that happened and talking about, like, um, was that going to happen to you? It's like, well, we thought about it and we put in a lot of contingencies to make sure it doesn't happen again. And then, obviously, what happens later, um, it sparks a lot of fear and stuff, which I, I wasn't even as aware of that until um have you did you ever see first man the gosling movie no i didn't armstrong i really enjoyed that movie especially because um it treats sort of like the early part of space travel from a perspective i never realized before which is treating it like a horror movie (laughs) where especially like they have that sequence and it's like genuinely terrifying where all those guys horribly burnt up and ryan gosling the whole movie is just like oh god am i gonna fucking die (laughs) like he thinks about that the whole goddamn time which i wouldn't blame him for necessarily yeah and this one obviously it portrays in much more of sort of like a hopeful space a lot more like it's obviously a tense situation but at least the tom hanks is trying to keep everybody together um and i especially like the the biggest thing i can definitely say is um all the effects stuff hold up incredibly well every single bit of it from like they're actually in like a sort of weightless area earlier on but even the stuff outside where you see the space station and just everything flying around because it feels so grounded and realistic it feels like the cg has not aged a day yeah it really does none of it feels um hokey none of it because it's not also it's not super overtly polished it, it mm-hmm. especially compared to other movies of this era that have a lot of special effects scenes and things like that you don't really see a lot of the seams or the wires as you know to use a term that you see in a lot of other movies from this era and even movies post that are special effects heavy uh for when they use them, it's really well done. I, I completely agree. And the set uh, itself of Inside the Ship, 
granted i've never been inside a spaceship or you know lunar landing module or anything like that i'm guessing they paid attention to detail because if i had to imagine it looks exactly how i would imagine it to look on the inside i mean it's pretty impressive no yeah especially from like whatever like documentaries and other things we've seen of the particular space stations and stuff, it feels very much like it's based off of those and has the same sort of like grainy film quality of that particular era too. It feels like when you see those old photos of like, oh, here's Neil Armstrong, everybody going off into the moon and all these other different missions, it feels appropriately kind of grainy and familiar. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, like I've been to the NASA museum and things like that and seen the things and and it's just amazing too. This movie really shows that these guys got to got to almost land on the moon, the ones who did land on the moon, Apollo 11, we have more computer technology in our smartphones than these guys had, and they made it to the fucking moon. And in this case, they survived dying in space. Exactly. It's fucking wild. Yeah, and I think especially when you, you see how much that really like holds up when they everybody's scrambling about, like, how the fuck do we save them? What do we do? And it's like, oh, we have to create this weird contraption <laughs> based on what limited materials they have. And I love that bit where the guy walks in with it and just slams on the table, like, they gotta make this. This is what they gotta make to get themselves yep. out of there. <laughs> yeah, the, the, we have to find a way to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. Using only what they have up there. And I mean, and then when they're telling them the stuff to use, I mean, literally, you know, use the cover to your binder. You take off a sock. You know, shit like that. Like, it's pretty fucking, like... It's the best MacGyver episode ever. (laughs) I guess when you lock a room full of rocket scientists together, you you better get some goddamn results. You know, and to go back to Ed Harris's performance, one of my favorite parts of his in the movie is when the the two guys are talking next to him, and they're like, you know, we this could be the greatest disaster, you know, of our time, of NASA's history. And Ed Harris is like, excuse me, I actually think it'll be our finest hour. And he sort of like just fucking glares at them. <laughs> and the way they're like, no, you're right. We're being fucking dicks. We got to try to stay positive here. I just thought that was a really, really good scene. Yeah, because admittedly, like anybody in the situation would probably be more like those two guys just like, Jesus, fuck, oh, yeah. this is going terribly. And Ed Harris is the boss just saying like, motherfuckers, come on, we got to do something here. Come on, let's not double. fucking vest. That yeah. gorgeous white leather vest. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. Um, and I will also say a big credit to this movie ended up winning for best sound design and best editing, which I completely agree with both of those. Because especially you're cutting between yeah. so many different characters and so many different, like in these very limited locations, but it all feels very dynamic. And this is about like a two hour, 10 minute movie, right? And it doesn't feel that length at all. It really uh-huh. goes by very smoothly. And all of the sound stuff, particularly when they're in space, and it's only, like, either the dialogue with Tom Hanks and everybody, or, like, the few, like, bits of tech that they're trying to fix and stuff like that, it only advances the tension that you have when it's just, like, that limited a sound design. Exactly. I, I like I the way you put that. It works so well because of the lack of actual sound, where every noise, every fluctuation on a word, everything is for a reason. It's meant to be heard crystal clear. It's everything's important. Every noise, every sound is important. And they do an absolutely masterful job of conveying that in this. Um, And it starts pretty much right off the bat, right? When they're about to take off and you hear that, they hear that like, you know, that wind up noise and they both like, look at Tom Hanks, like it's the fuel cells. Like it it starts right off the bat. It lets you know that every noise is going to be important. Yeah. And even down to, in terms of the noise stuff, um, this movie reminded me just every time I watch a movie that's scored by this man, how much I love James Horner 
as a oh, score. He's so as, fucking good, man. As a composer. It's such a bummer that dude died, because I would love to still mm-hmm. keep hearing that dude make these awesome, like, bombastic scores. It's particularly here, this is what I think of whenever I, like, go to a space station. It's like this type of music. Where it's just, like, yeah, it's of course. Perfectly encompasses sort of, like, the heroism and also the daring and all this other stuff. It's just... God, I miss that dude and his scores. No, he's he's one of the all-time greats, for sure. And the score in this, while not overtly uh, intrusive, is really, really well done. And uh, how do you feel about Ron Howard's direction? Because we should mention this is not the first Ron Howard movie we've done uh, way back when, about a year ago, actually, we did uh, Willow. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think I said it then, and, and uh, I'm going to stick to it still. I'm not a huge Ron Howard fan. I, I tend to find his work kind of dry and uh, almost meandering sometimes. But this is probably my, if not my favorite, it's it's right up there with my favorite Ron Howard directed films. I mean, I got nothing against Ron Howard personally. You know, I, A, I don't fucking know the guy, and B, he seems like a genuine good dude that cares about the craft. Just, he's a little dry for me, but I do really, really enjoy this movie. Well, I think what works about that dude is that um, even when I agree he can sometimes do very dry material, I think he tends to be really good when he sort of has a somewhat sort of genre or specific sort of like story, but he focuses in on like characters interacting with each other, which I think uh-huh. that really works here between like obviously the, our three main astronauts in space. And I think in other movies, like I would say my favorite of his is Frost Nixon, uh, which is a such Oh God, movie. I forgot that's him. That is, that's probably his best movie. Yeah, that is such a movie. great fucking movie. And I expected it to be just a bore fest because it's just, you know, David Frost and Nixon talking in a room, but the whole time I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know what's going to happen by the end yeah, of that 100%. story, but you still don't get, because Michael Sheen and especially Franklin Jill are so great. Together. Oh, he's so good. Yes. But anyways, yeah, no, that's probably my favorite Ron Howard movie. And it, probably his most understated movie too. Yeah. Like, there's not, there's nothing really happens in that movie. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, we can definitely say this is the better collaboration he did with Hanks compared to a trilogy of really boring Dan Brown stories. Can you believe they made a fucking trilogy of those? I can't fucking believe it. And what is going on with his hair in those movies? No, I just... No, no, and I purposely didn't pick any of those either because I can't fucking suffer those. I've only seen the first one. I remember Paul Bettany and Alfred Molina in it, and I think Alfred Molina's in it. He might not even be in the fucking thing. But it's, it's, yeah, I'm good. I'm good on those movies. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to, like, I hear, I, I really agree. I think, like, he, he handles, like, all of the, the space stuff well, but he also has, like, a real a special sense of, obviously, family with, like, uh, mm-hmm. Jim Lovell stuff in particular um, and the sort of interactions we do have with, like, some of the other people, like the astronaut wives, as it were, kind of talking to each other. Um, and, and even, um, I, I do kind of love how much of a, fucking horn dog Kevin Bacon is early one. We're just like, well, uh, imagine that this is the cockpit and this is the uh, lunar missile and he just like puts the beer inside of the cup. <laughs> it's like you gotta really penetrate it. I, I really like the dynamic he establishes between like all these different guys at various different stages of being like either family men or not or especially in how that like kind of contrasts between all of them when they're up in space. No, yeah, absolutely. The, the attention to character detail in this is is really, really well done. You you feel like you, you know enough about every single character that even pops on the screen. Even the guy who, you know, is the one who figures out, like, no, we do not have 45 hours. We have 16 hours until their batteries die and stuff like that. You get it. I got a sense of who that guy is, like, almost immediately. 
You know what I mean? Like it's, it's really, really, really well done to where even, like we said, Clint Howard's character, you can almost picture what his home life is like, you know what I mean? Right. Right. They give you enough in every character and in the main characters, you know, you really only spend time most of the time with Tom Hanks's family, but you also do get glimpses of Bill Paxton's and it's enough. Uh, and you get the idea that Kevin Bacon is just a horn dog. He just, you know, a girl in every port sort of deal. And he feels like he doesn't have much to go back to. So even he, yeah. he has almost the, the thing where he's like, I just don't feel like I've lived a life yet. And he's up in space. Right. Exactly. And it, it, it almost feels like the bond that he forms with these two guys is going to be more important to him than it is to them. Cause they'll have somebody now that he shared something like this with, you know, where he doesn't have a, a wife or kids at home or someone to go back to, to sort of emotionally unload upon. And these guys, at least he's got a kinship now. Which makes it honestly even more tragic when that's just kind of thrown off during the ending. But he's the one that died from cancer. Of course. The youngest one and died first. Because the other, the, uh, I believe the other two are still alive. I know at least Lovell's alive. I'm not sure about the Bill Paxton. I believe I checked today. And the Bill Paxton character was actually younger than Jim Lovell. Which I wouldn't have thought. But he was, uh. I think a good six to seven years actually even younger than um, Jim Lovell is Fred Hayes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's still alive. He's uh, he's 86 now. Oh, wow. And Jim Lovell is in his 90s. Yeah, so um, if you guys are listening, which I'm sure you are, you know exactly yeah. what podcasts are, and you totally listen. <laughs> they're our biggest fans. They always post comments. We just never share them because they're too afraid. They don't want to be mentioned. Yeah, I want to listen to it to your sell it in wax cylinders. <laughs> Is that on the radio? I want to listen to it after I've watched my Jack Benny. <laughs> after I've watched my shows, my stories. Oh, <laughs> I almost went to the food. Sure, Grandpa. <laughs> well, on that note of disrespecting people who have been into space and survived a horrible tragedy, Adam, your final thoughts on Apollo 13. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it, man. I really enjoyed watching it again. My wife gets a real big kick out of, you know, all things NASA and space stuff. She's kind of a dork when it comes to that. Like, that's one of her nerd out things. So she, you know, watched it with me and she really, really enjoyed it. So that probably just amplified my enjoyment of it as well. But I think it's a really well-constructed movie. I think it's incredibly acted, uh, really well shot, and just a really sort of thrilling yet self-contained sort of story that, you know, it's a nice window into the history of not only NASA, but sort of where the country was at during this time. Uh, And it's, you know, one of Tom Hanks' strongest performances, especially from this era. Yeah, I mean, I I really agree. Having, like, seen it in full now for the first time, um, I really did quite enjoy it. Um, I think it's a great example of, like, how you can make sort of these space movies and really make it so much about the characters, despite the sort of gravitas that's going on around here, because it really is, it's a story about people who realize, like, the impossible is happening and they have to try and get out of that situation, which is something that anybody can be endeared to. It's even more endearing when you realize this is a real story that actually happened and these guys actually survived it. And from what I've heard, it's very extremely accurate. Um, it makes me curious, if nothing else, to just research more about the Apollo 13 mission. Um, to to some degree, um, it's it's such a fascinating story, and it's really well performed, really well directed. One of Ron Howard's definitely best films, uh, and it really holds up in terms of the the visual effects stuff, especially 
Um, I I can't emphasize enough about how like technically extremely well crafted all of this is to result in one of the better, like I said, sort of grounded space movies ever. Though I would still, I kind of mentioned it earlier, I think First Man's very underrated. Kind of got swept up in, oh, this is his follow-up to, Damien Giselle's follow-up to La La Land. And people just kind of swept it under the rug, unfortunately. When that one also has some uh, pretty great examples of, especially when they actually go to space. Spoilers! That's when Neil Armstrong went to the moon. Um, what? <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it yet! <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, we didn't talk about this either. I do like the little cameo from Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong trying to calm down Tom Hanks' mom distractor. Yeah, me too. They're making tea and shit. Yeah, yeah it's just like, are you boys in the space program too? <laughs> <laughs> very, very well done. Uh, but that's the end of our discussion of our two Tom Hanks films. And uh, we've got uh, some more things to do, including do our picking for next week at the end of this, so st- stay tuned for that. Um, but before we do that, we do uh, ask all of you every Monday at Pod on Facebook and Twitter about what your favorite or least favorite examples of whatever topic we're doing. So we asked you all about Tom Hanks and the various roles that he's done. And uh, first off, James Rodriguez, a previous guest on the show, says, um, it's easy to list his work across the Toy Story films, but I would like to nominate the underrated Catch Me if you can. It's also worth mentioning that the, the exceptional achievement of Cloud Atlas, as you get to see multiple Tom Hanks performances, including him trying to be an Irish hand man. Um, as for worst... A hologram for the king is a dull experience, and I find Forrest Gump to be like a box of coffee chocolates. Awful. Blake Smith at uh, Dr. Atlantis said, um, Hanks' literal best worst movie is Mazes and Monsters. I don't know for sure, but I bet you if you show this to a new generation of young RPG players, they'd be perplexed by whatever the hell its players are doing. Appalled by the giant minis and drop jaw at the WTC finale. Um, Nick Fraser says, as always, I don't have a simple answer. For worse, I would have to say the easy, lazy early choice, like Dragnet or Joe vs. the Volcano. But instead, I'll go with The Lady Killers, easily my most disliked Coen Brothers film, and I love their movies. Best, Castaway. Yeah, there are problems with that movie, but Hanks ain't one of them for me. Special mention for The Terminal, an awful schmaltzy mess uh, from later Spielberg, uh, with characters not acting well in character, uh, but Tom Hanks did make me forget I was watching Tom Hanks for two hours, so high marks for that. Uh, thanks to Tropic Thunder, I have trouble with Forrest Gump now. Um, and Dan Click of the Thunder Talk podcast, which is on the ESO Network, says, uh, Best Philadelphia, because Philadelphia. Worst, Mazes and Monsters, he made D&D and Devil Worship look so uncool. Um, also, uh, Forrest Gump, mainly for the slut-shame framing of Jenny, for which whom Forrest uh, was a constant reminder of her trauma, whom she was had every right to run away from. Um, and Jen Farah says, um, he has been in at least 86 movies. Now, I know for a fact I haven't seen them all, but the ones I have seen never disappoint. His voice, his humor, his face. He is all around an amazing actor. I need to see more crappy Tom Hanks movies. Um, well, Jen, uh, some of those were mentioned previously. I-, I am kind of surprised by the constant mentions of Mazes and Monsters, which is relatively obscure. Are you aware of Mazes and Monsters, Adam? No. No, I'm not. Okay, so this was in 1982. This was an early TV movie. I think it even predates Bosom Buddies. And it's basically, like, a movie that came off of, like, the late 70s, early 80s fear of, like, Dungeons and Dragons is, like, devil worship. Okay. Tom Hanks plays one of the many players, and he's the one that gets sucked into, like, the sort of weird psychotic break where he thinks, like, the mazes and monsters, monsters are uh... real, and he sees them. And there's some amazing acting of Tom Hanks trying to deal with that. There was a point where, like, he gets lost in the city, and he gets attacked by a mugger who he thinks is a monster, and he goes over to a payphone to call one of his friends, and she's like, Frank, where are you? He's like, 
I don't know. I don't know where I am. <laughs> oh, no. It's so funny. <laughs> I, got, and, <laughs> I got to see it now. Uh, especially the Tom Hanks bits are so funny. And also, um, shout out to the mayor from Jaws plays like the lead detective who's looking into like some of these crimes that are generally related to D&D supposedly and the guys are just like well that seems pretty far out that somebody would like do this because of a you know a game and then he says well you know Mazes and Monsters is a pretty far out game which by the way is their version of D&D to be legally distinct they call it Mazes and Monsters (laughs) it's so dumb but yeah the Tom Hanks stuff is so funny he becomes like catatonic at the end because he's just like oh this game just completely turned him into a vegetable and we gotta quit this game guys because we could end up like Tom Hanks (laughs) (laughs) so fucking stupid (laughs) Um, I mean there's some other ones that were kind of mentioned here like I said I think Bonfire of the Vandies is the worst one Um, I think it's such a terrible attempt at like yuppie satire from around that time any others Maybe Adam, you would think of. I, well, I mean, they mentioned the terminal to me. I completely forgot that movie even existed. Uh, Tom Hanks was good in it, but I mean, that's the one thing you could say about him. Even in the ones that I might not be a fan of, he's usually really consistent in. But I'm not a huge splash fan now. I don't really like Bachelor Party all that much. We talked about Bonfire of the Vandies. Uh, as far as his later ones, I wasn't a huge fan of Saving. Was it Saving Mrs. Banks? Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of that one. Uh, not that it was his fault, but it, what, then the one, uh, is that the one I'm thinking of with him and Julia Roberts? Oh, Larry Crown, which is his yes. second directorial effort, which is also weird. Following up one of his best, I would argue, with That Thing You Do, which is an amazing movie. I love That Thing You Do. That Thing You yep. Do is one of those movies that anytime it's on, I'm watching it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but no, Larry Crown was kind of lousy. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I'm not a big, I don't like Cloud Atlas. I think it's an overbloated mess. I, I really was not a fan of it. I know there are a lot of people who are fans, but I just couldn't do it. I don't know if it's, you know, the movie itself or the offensive makeup in parts or what it is, but I just, I couldn't, couldn't get into it. And we, you and I have discussed the lady killers and right. You know, it might be one of the Coen brothers' weakest performance, but I'd argue it's one of Tom Hanks's better comedic performances. He's so fucking good in it. I mean, the, the way that uh, actually uh, Nick described the, the terminal, I would actually agree with him about with uh, Castaway. I feel it's very similarly with Castaway, where yeah, I have a I'm... lot of problems with that movie, but he's so good in it. Some of those troubles melt away a bit more. He also has a weird track record with uh, Zemeckis, too, because he was also rather infamously in Polar Express. Where he played zombie train conductor Tom Hanks singing yeah. about hot chocolate. Also, you know what? Even when I was a kid, I never liked Turner and Hooch. No, I'm not a big Turner and Hooch fan either. Uh, I, it's just, it didn't, never really did it for me. I did like Dragnet a lot when I was a kid. I actually still kind of have some soft spots for Dragnet. It's not that good of a movie, but there's still some stuff in it that makes me laugh. Him especially. I think Tom Hanks is quite, quite good uh, opposite straight-laced Dan Aykroyd in that movie. I mean, I would say in terms of, like, some good ones, I think are especially underrated. Charlie Wilson's War, I think, uh-huh. deserves a lot more attention. I think that movie is incredibly well put together. And it's one of, like, him, especially in directing, of, I would argue, like, the MVP underrated performance of Phil Seymour Hoffman's career. <laughs> He's so fucking good in that movie. He's really good in that movie, too. Road to Perdition is one of mine. Oh, amazing movie. <laughs> I mean, that, God damn it, do I love that movie. And him very much playing against type, because he's still a dad, but he's like a, a very violent gangster dude. But oh, he he's a fit, appropriate. And people are terrified of him. Yeah. 
in that movie. It's not like the other the other gangsters and stuff like are ter- absolutely terrified of Tom Hanks in that movie. That's a fucking that's one of those movies that really kind of got lost by the wayside, man. And it's a shame because that's a fantastic movie. And it's also a shame he he hasn't been nominated since Castaway for an Oscar, but I felt like he did really deserve it for Captain Phillips, which was a movie that I have some issues with to some degree, but I think he is especially phenomenal during that ending bit. I actually haven't seen that one. Um, well, I personally um, had some issues with it, but there's 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 still a lot of like really um, great stuff, especially with his performance alone in it. Um, and we t- we talked about the Burbs previously. He's phenomenal in that movie. I think that's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's sort of like one of the funnier live action roles for Tom Hanks. But and then even you know, like I've mentioned before, Woody. It's one of the more like innovative and memorable animated characters in recent memory. A lot of which is because of Hanks, because he puts so much of that personality into it. Absolutely, I argue Woody is, you know, now a modern animated icon. And it, it's completely because of Tom Hanks. I, I don't know that the, those movies would be as either A, as memorable, or had as many made without such a strong performance from Hanks in it. Yeah, and I would especially say even down to the recently released Toy Story 4, I thought he did a phenomenal job. Because that is mainly sort of like Woody's story, to a certain degree. Yeah. And I really dug how that movie was really about sort of Woody realizing, like, well, I've been protecting, like, these toys all my life and sort of being mainly about my owner, but I haven't really done much for myself all this time. I think that was like, he particularly played like such a great example of like sort of a father coming to realize like, I don't just have to be about my children. I also need to kind of like appreciate myself to some degree, finally learning a bit of self care to some degree and appreciation for your, yourself at a time where you're kind of almost in a retirement mode. Um, I really dug how they did that. No, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, the thing is like, like we've said before and you know, with some of our other topics, it's hard to really pick out really bad movies featuring Tom Hanks because there's so many good. And, and even the ones that are typically, would you consider bad movies? He's quite fantastic in them. You know, you pegged it best, I think, at the closing of our last episode. He is like our generation's Jimmy Stewart. He's an American icon. No matter if you don't like the movie, you're still going to enjoy seeing Tom Hanks in it. Honestly, that's why he is, I would say, probably the most beloved American actor of easily of our generation. I mean, because look at some of the other ones we've had where people are like, oh, it's America's sweetheart. Oh, wait, he's crazy. <laughs> but uh, no, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, you never hear anything bad about him. He, he doesn't have any scandals. He doesn't, He's just a, seems like a genuinely good dude, and he is really, really, really good at what he does. Yep, unless you're, like I mentioned at the la- in the last episode, Henry Winkler <laughs> apparently got beef. Yeah, which is so weird. <laughs> so odd to me that the Fonz has beef with Tom Hanks. Yes. But hey, what are you going to do? Yes, and uh, we want to thank you for listening, along with all of our listeners and all the people who sent feedback to us. Thank you all. We also want to thank the people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that's used in our show. And uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at DEDBpod. That's where we put up those feelers about, you know, what your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing. And also, uh, you can submit feedback there or at doubleedgedoublebill, all spelled out, at gmail.com. And uh, you can follow me on my own individual Twitter account at NotTheWho'sTommy. Um, I also do some writing for uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com where I do some reviews and stuff. And I also uh, write for TrueSuperheroFans.com. Um, as of when we're recording this, the site is currently down. We're working to fix that for some reason. I don't know. Uh, we've been uh, invaded by some kind of Disney corporate heads, I'm sure. 
uh, for wow. some reason. Uh, but don't worry, we'll uh, we'll get that fixed shortly. Um, and uh, for the MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, I just wrote a review for Parasite that is still up there, which uh, is it's so great. Wow. I really want to see that. It's so good, and I don't want to. I try and be so spoiler free in that review. Like even the I only summarize like the first 10 minutes of the movie basically um because there's so many twists and turns with that one it's it is my favorite movie of the year so far i don't know how many other things can beat it cool i'm excited to see it yes and uh you know what you could also see is uh some of adam's little artistic things that he does over at ghoulish gourds right yeah facebook.com slash ghoulish gourds you know i specialize in horror pop culture art and i usually put them on uh, styrofoam or plastic pumpkins. That way they'll last year round. You know, I, I give them the old, the old one, two, I guess you could say, but, uh, coming up, I'm going to be doing, uh, Christmas bulbs. Uh, so all custom made one of a kind pieces. And, uh, you know, if you want one and you see something you might like on the page, if you go check it out, please feel free to reach out to me personally. Or reach out to our Twitter account or, you know, however you want to do it and get a hold of me and I'll cut you a deal if you mention you heard it on the show. Yes, and uh, for more great quality, wholesome Tom Hanks-related content like this, uh, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms out there. And uh, if you're listening on the ESO Network, why not dig into the archives on our Podbean feed uh, for the first several episodes we didn't post on that particular feed. Um, And you can also rate and review us, or at least share us around the internet to give us more visibility. Yeah, I really wish you would. <laughs> Make a poor Adam happy. Just, yeah, just share uh, come Adam, on. Right? Yes. The boy got no shoes. Because <laughs> this gets us so much money. Yeah. <laughs> We're raking in so much dough doing this. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> now it's time uh, for the end of the show where uh, we pick our options for next week's episode in honor of a um, pretty big event. We're getting a new film from a certain director who's been around for ages, and I would argue is one of the more consistent examples of a guy from the big sort of uh, new age of Hollywood who's still making movies and is still making pretty good movies consistently. Uh, We are getting a new film from Martin Scorsese on Netflix the day after we actually will be releasing this episode next week, The Irishman. So we're doing uh, Martin Scorsese movies. Behind the scenes, folks, we were waiting to hear when this movie would drop on Netflix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just so we could do this particular episode. We were just like, keep following the news. It's like, oh, <sighs> right before Thanksgiving? There. Do it. Because we're obviously both film nerds and we love Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese is one of the greatest directors in my time. If not the, as far as American directors. He's an absolute icon and a genius when it comes to He's a genius auteur. Yeah, and also he's a guy that not only makes great movies, but also just genuinely loves film in so many forms. Whereas, like, he's the first guy who I ever, we'll probably talk about this more next week, but he's, like, the first guy I knew who, like, really loved the idea of preserving film, and also he really is a great supporter of, like, up-and-coming filmmakers. How many, especially, yep. like, filmmakers of color he loves producing for. And he's just a spry little nerd. Yeah, uh, but he hates Marvel movies, so fuck him. Yeah, right, exactly. Fuck him. Did you follow all that bullshit with the Marvel movies? Yes, and I did. It's like, come on, guys. Who gives a shit? And he was also very fair about it, honestly. Like, I said, he was just like, did you read the New York Times op-ed that he did? Yes, yes. Which, yeah, is that... a, which is fucking ridiculous that he had to, but yes. Yeah, but it put it so succinctly. It's just like, look, those movies aren't for me. I get how people who are younger than me might like them. But here's the reason I have more of an issue about like what they represent. 
And it's like, well, yeah, you know, as someone who likes, you know, superhero movies, I might not totally agree that I don't like those movies, but also, he's completely right that, like, they kind of recycle shit in their big theme parks. No, I, I completely agree. And ultimately, who gives a shit? Right. If you like him, you like him. Who cares what Martin Scorsese thinks, honestly? Oh, no, but no, we have to take him down. But, like, he just makes crime movies. Like, he odds all he makes. I mean, come on. Like, my favorite gangster yeah, movie is Last Temptation of Christ, guys. It's so great. Yep, absolutely. Great gangster yeah. movie. <laughs> oh, Hugo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, man, remember all those gunning down scenes in Age of Innocence? So phenomenal. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, when doing the show, obviously, uh, we do a good and a bad pick. and Because uh, you have the two good movies, Adam, and I have the two bad movies. And you've assigned numbers from yes. 1 and 10 for yours, and I've done the same for mine. We'll both each pick numbers from 1 and 10 for the opposing person's choices and end up getting a good and bad feature. Um, with Martin Scorsese, that's a bit interesting because it's it's tough for, I think, both of us. You have the embarrassment of riches of, like, so many great movies. Right, but I also want to pick ones that aren't oft discussed, too, yep. and, and that's very difficult. And then for me, these two movies are both movies I actually at least remember liking to some extent, but they're just lower on the totem pole. And I have a feeling that one of my good picks might be one of your bad picks. Well, with, with all that, I'm very curious. So... For uh, for your two good movies, Adam, I'm going to pick number four. At number three, I have, which is the one that I think might be on your bad pick, Gangs of New York. No, actually, I really like Gangs of New York. I know the one has a like mixed reputation. God, it's so good. Yeah. Oh, fucking Daniel Day-Lewis. Jesus Christ. What <laughs> <laughs> up? And then at number nine, I have uh, The Departed, which I know is off-talked about, but I really, really love that movie. Yeah, that was the first Scorsese movie I ever saw in the theater. Uh, it might have been mine, too, to be honest. I remember distinctly, because like, my dad and I went and saw that, and my sisters went and saw uh, the remake of My Friend Flicka. <laughs> that was out at that time. And their movie was like 90 minutes long, and they had to wait around like another hour and a half for our movie to end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's what they get. We're watching a real movie over here where Mark Wahlberg's here. Um, now, Adam, for my two bad picks, number two, one, and ten. Uh, I'm going to pick the same. I'm going to go number four, same as you. Okay. At uh, number three, I had one that I remember distinctly disliking, but I think for very unfair reasons at the time that it came out. Um, I think maybe because it was mismarketed, I would argue. Shutter Island from 2010. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. That that definitely would have been one of my picks for bad, too. And and I don't know that it's because it's a bad movie. It's been almost 10 years since I've seen it now. So I haven't oh, seen it since the theaters. So. that long. Jesus Christ. February 2010, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm very yeah. curious to revisit that one. Okay, and your other? At uh, number nine, I had Cape Fear. Oh, I love Cape Fear. I really like Cape Fear for the first two thirds of it, and then I would argue it becomes much more of like a monster chase movie during the third act. That's kind of disappointing. It does. But then that's also like I would say that like oh that's a good Martin Scorsese movie. Therefore, it's lower echelon. <laughs> We're grasping at straws. Yeah, I, I completely understand. I'll tell you what though, both of our picks not necessarily the way I thought it would go. No, neither are gangster movies. So suck on that fucking internet. <laughs> But really, Gangs of New York is like an Avengers movie, if you really think about it. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, Adam, uh, that's the end of our episode for tonight. We're going to go ahead and get out of here, but uh, after recording, I need to pitch you on this idea now. How do you feel about jumping into a volcano? Man, that sounds great. I think about it every day. Volcano. <laughs>
shark infested water, you know, a personal alcoholic abyss. You know, I'm constantly on the precipice. Well, I'll have my people call your people. We'll get this together. Good night, everybody. Bye forever. been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the TeePublic store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.